Well, I'm happy to finally say a few words with you this evening. As somebody may have mentioned, we've been busily engaged in annual guiding IMS teacher meetings. We've been immersed in that for the last three days. It's very nice to come now into the hall, into this space. It's a huge relief. <laughs> a retreat, especially one of this length, is really a very special time in our lives. It's a chance to disentangle from all of our worldly concerns, to step back, to quiet down, to let go. And in the beauty and the stillness of this environment, we can begin to touch that place of beauty and stillness within ourselves. There's a tremendous sense of joy and peace and relief in putting things down even for a few moments at a time. When our heart relaxes and we can simply let things be as they are. A huge grateful sigh begins to emerge Because what's happening is that we're putting down, even for a few moments at a time, we're putting down the struggle, and we're putting down the clinging, and we're putting down the grasping. Settling back into a mind space of relaxed wakefulness, of the innate wakefulness of the mind. If we lived in this environment for six weeks or three months and we simply were here in silence and did nothing else, it would be a hugely rejuvenating experience just to be in silence. And yet during this retreat, with this opportunity to practice something of much greater import and significant happens, It really is an opportunity for a deeply authentic and genuine spiritual transformation to take place. And I know you all have a sense of that, which is what brings you here. We begin to see that our practice is also a means for bringing transformation to the world. Just the last week, I was at a gathering with Ramdas, who's visiting the East Coast now. And as most of you probably know, some years ago he had a stroke and was confined to a wheelchair. Very speech was very difficult. He's much improved from the initial time. He's just beginning, actually, to walk a bit out of the wheelchair, and his speech is much better. Uh, And so there's a large, very happy gathering of people with him out in Western Mass. And we are old friends going back to the early days in India, and have been in touch over all these years. 
And one of the things he said to me at this gathering, which moved me a lot, given his connection with what's going on in our culture, he said he felt that IMS was the leading institution for social change in America. And that's quite amazing and very moving. You know, here we are sitting quietly in silence. Something very powerful happens. And what happens in us gets brought to the world that we live in. So it's tremendously significant on so many levels. A very unique aspect of Buddha Dharma is that it both begins and ends in right understanding. We're not starting with a set of beliefs or dogmas or something we have to adhere to. The Buddha's invitation from the very beginning is to come and see, to come and investigate. Not to believe, to simply explore what is true in our own experience. And as we do that and walk the path, it of course ends in the wisdom of enlightenment, the wisdom of awakening. So both in our daily lives, and especially now on retreat, what we need to do is to find a way to come to this understanding, to nurture this right understanding, so that it becomes a foundation, it becomes a context, a container, to hold all the ups and downs and twists and turns of our experience. And as I'm sure you all know and will know even better as the days go on, It's not simply that our practice gets better and lighter and more enlightened and more blissful and happier day by day, sitting by sitting, and by the end of the three months you float out of here. (laughs) It's not what happens. The exploration goes through so many phases and ups and downs and into dark corners and shadows and places of light and bliss, and it's all of it right understanding from the very beginning all the way through the path is the container which allows us to hold it to give a meaning to the ups and downs of our particular experiences. There are four reflections which really help create this container of right understanding. They're called the four mind-changing reflections because they're reflections which change our mind or turn our mind toward the Dharma. So in the midst of whatever particular thing we happen to be going through, and there will be many, if we can recollect these four reflections, those recollections will keep bringing us back to the Dharma context of what's going on. It will keep us on the path of awakening. 
So they're a very powerful part of this whole retreat. The first of these mind-changing reflections has to do with the preciousness of our human birth. Now, the Buddhist teachings, there's a vast cosmology of many world systems and many planes of existence, you know, the lower realms and the higher realms and the heavens and the Brahma worlds. And it's big. It's a very big vision. And what the Buddha said repeatedly in his teachings was how precious it was to take human birth. He, he likened it to arriving at a great island of treasures where all these treasures become available. Because as a human being, if we understand the way to happiness, the way to fulfillment, the way to awakening, every happiness is available to us. That's what characterizes this human realm. So it's like we've arrived you know, in this treasure island. Do we waste our time on this island not knowing, not understanding? Or do we use the preciousness of that opportunity given the rarity of it in this whole vast cosmology? Do we use this reflection to waken us to how precious it really is. But even if we don't particularly believe in other realms or past lives or future lives, we can see and use this recollection within the circumstances of this life and this retreat. The most basic principle in Buddha Dharma one of the most basic principles is that everything arises out of conditions. Nothing is happening independent of the conditions which brought it into being. So all of our experience in every dimension is the coming together, is the arising, because the conditions are there for it to arise. And these conditions are changing, unstable, uncertain. In so many places in the world, we know people, and right here, people are going about their lives, feeling very secure, things are right on track, And then in a moment, something can happen which turns everything upside down. You know, it could be physical, natural disasters. Just, you know, a few weeks before we started the the earthquakes in Turkey, tens of thousands of people lost their lives and homes. And just in a moment, a few seconds, and the whole world changes. Or the devastation of warfare on just ordinary people living their lives, or the onset of some disease. You know, we're going along, going along, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the situation, perhaps of some life-threatening disease. 
conditions are always changing. They're always uncertain. This is not an accident. This is how things are. We're not exempt from this truth. Our own lives are part of this. Now, for now, we have the great good fortune of having the leisure, the time, the resources, the interest, the motivation to practice, to come and really walk this path towards liberation. I think it's important that we recollect the preciousness of our human birth, the preciousness of our current situation, so that we don't take these conditions for granted, because in fact they can change at any time. So we begin to see these present conditions as a great gift, a great blessing in our lives, that we have this opportunity Among all those who are born as human beings, how few ever get to hear teachings of liberation, of freedom? It's a very small number. And even among those who have the good fortune to hear teachings of liberation, how many are interested in them? Very few. And of those who are interested in them, How many have the motivation to actually put them into practice? Even fewer. So if we reflect on this and we reflect on our own lives and see that we're here as the result of tremendous, what in Buddhist terminology are called paramis, or past, our own past wholesome actions, We have created the conditions through our past actions for this opportunity. And when we reflect in that way, it can cause, bring into being a tremendous sense of joy and self-respect and confidence. It's not by accident that we're all here doing this. And it's very rare. Steve spoke last night a little bit about the Bodhisattva under the tree on the night of his enlightenment, being assailed by Mara, all the forces, greed, hatred, delusion, self-doubt. And the legend has it that when self-doubt arose in the Bodhisattva's mind, he reached down to Mother Earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there. What does that mean? It's the recognition that, yes, he had put in all these lifetimes of work, that resulted in that possibility, that potential for awakening that evening. In our own way, we have done the same thing. So it's helpful to kind of take our seat, our Dharma seat, with tremendous self-respect and respect for each one who is here. It's a rare and precious thing. But even reflecting on our own good deeds can sometimes be co-opted by Mara. remember one time in Burma, I was sitting with Upandita, and 
I was going through a phase, as you might well go through in this time, where things seemed to be at a standstill. Sitting and walking and sitting and walking, but I just felt like I was going around in circles. Not much seemed to be happening. I'd go in day after day and basically report the same thing. You know, and he was very patient and tried all his little tricks. And then one day he said, Well, Joseph, I think you should reflect on your sila, your morality. Thinking, well, I'll reflect on it and I'll just you know, it'll raise some energy in me and I'll feel that confidence and maybe it'll help the whole process. But of course, I heard that, reflect on your sila, and my first thought was, what did I do wrong? <laughs> you know, he wants me to search out every misdeed I've ever done. So we have to watch our Western mind of self-judgment. It's not about that. It's about taking joy you know, and the wholesomeness that has brought us here. The second of the reef, that turn our minds toward the Dharma. First is the reflection on the preciousness of this human birth, the preciousness of these circumstances that allow us to practice in this way at this depth, realizing just how rare it is. The second of the reflections that bring our mind back to right understanding to holding whatever particular experience we're having in the context of wisdom is the reflection, the recollection of impermanence. And somehow we need to look deeply enough into this that we bring it from the level of intellectual understanding to one of living wisdom. Because we've all known for a long time that things change. This is not big news. But we're not living it. We know it up here, but if we really know it deeply and fully and intimately, we would not hold on to anything. There'd be no attachment. And yet, we find ourselves attached and clinging to lots of things. And so, we need to not take for granted our understanding of impermanence, but to continually deepen our appreciation and perception of it in the moment. So it becomes very alive for us. It was this reflection on impermanence that's said to have inspired the Bodhisattva in his quest for enlightenment, for Buddhahood. He said, why should I, who am subject to change and decay, keep seeking those things which are subject to change and decay? Why do we live our lives continually going after things which in their nature are not going to last. Where is the satisfaction in that? What is the point of it? Yet when we look at our lives, we see it's what we mostly do. 
Typically, we lead our lives looking forward or anticipating the next hit of experience. The next whatever. The next retreat. The next relationship. The next meal. The next breath. And here it gets very refined, but it's the same process. As if somehow the next thing is going to do it for us, is going to finally complete us, when nothing that's come before has. So why we're deluded into thinking that the next thing will? This is, this is the massive delusion that we live in. And it's very interesting, even as you're here in practice, to watch the mind do that. Now, as you're sitting, or as you're walking, is the mind relaxed back into the simple awareness of what's arising? Or is it leaning forward in some kind of wanting or desire for the next, whatever? Very interesting thing to watch in our minds. When we reflect, and reflect here does not mean simply thinking about it, although some some thought reflection could be helpful in directing our attention, but it's more about the direct seeing of impermanence. When we reflect, when we see the impermanence, we see that all experience is simply part of this endlessly passing show. A phrase that my teacher Manindraji used a lot, and it's got so deeply embedded in my consciousness, empty phenomena rolling on. That's all anything is. It's just empty phenomena rolling on, moment after moment after moment. Can we relax? into the awareness of it all, rather than the reaching for, grasping for, clinging to, wanting something else. One of the questions that Manindraji used to ask us as we were practicing with him in India, he'd say, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing, of thinking, of feeling? I mean, how many thoughts have we already had? How many do we need? You know, how many sights or how many tastes? Or how... It's like we've been going endlessly around and around and around and around. And always with that sense, oh, the next one. That's what will make me happy. That's samsara. That's this endless wandering. Now, the paradox of our situation is that as objects of desire, sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings and tastes and all kinds of experience, as objects of desire always leave us unfulfilled because they're impermanent, they don't last. Yet as objects of mindfulness, the very same experiences as objects of mindfulness become the vehicle for our awakening. So it's not the experiences that are the problem. It's not the sights or sounds or smells or tastes or thoughts or feelings. There's nothing wrong in those things arising. How are we we relating? 
we're relating as objects of desire or as objects of mindfulness takes us down two very different roads. Deeply liberating insight comes from the direct seeing, the direct clear perception of impermanence in all its levels, from the momentary microscopic kind of impermanence that we can see on retreat as the meditation deepens, to the everyday kind of impermanence that permeates all lives. Just as a simple example, the next time you get up for a walk, just pay attention to the flow of your experience, the different sensations of the body as you move. And if you're outside, maybe the feel of the cool air on your skin, or the thoughts that come, or the sounds, or the sights, and just watch. Just watch what happens to each of these experiences as you're walking. Very simply. You don't have to be a great yogi to see this. This is when we pay attention. It becomes so obvious that moment after moment experiences are rising and disappearing and disappearing and disappearing and new things are arising and disappearing. This is how things are and it's very obvious. This is not a great subtle discovery. I think the problem is that it is so ordinary that we've stopped paying attention to it. And because we've stopped paying attention to the experience and the truth of the momentariness of our experience, we miss the opportunity to practice the not clinging. We just get caught up in our usual habits of reactivity to what's happening. Because we're not paying attention to this very obvious truth that it all is simply changing phenomena, moment after moment. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, who died some years ago, he was really a well-loved teacher. He said in his usual very simple down-to-earth way, he said something directly to this point. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. It's so simple, and yet it seems so difficult to remember to do. And so in a way, you can think of all this time here as a training in remembering remembering to be present in order to see the very obvious truth of change, of impermanence, so that we no longer cling, 
so that we come to abide in a place of peace. Now the great beauty for me in the Buddhist teachings is how incredibly common sense they are. It's not some abstruse teachings. And this is what can make it so alive for us. Sometimes reflections on the obvious truths of impermanence, when we look carefully, they can really jolt us out of our complacency. Just as an example of a few of these, that again are very obvious, but we often don't take the time or give a real consideration to. The end of birth is death. That for all of us, our life is simply running out. Life is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, and then one day we'll die. Do we really let that in? Do we take the truth, the fact of our own death, and the fact that this will inevitably happen, and that our life is simply getting shorter all the time, do we let that in in a deep way? And when we do, how do we hold it? Does it frighten us? Does it inspire us? Does it awaken us? It's interesting to open to this very obvious obvious truth of experience. The end of birth is death, and this is just part of nature, it's part of natural law. But so often we live in denial, we just don't think about it. The end of accumulation is dispersion. We spend so much of our lives accumulating things of one kind or another, whatever our particular little hobby is. You know, it could be Whatever. <laughs> you know, it could be things or possessions or jobs or projects or people or whatever it is. And we all have our own particular things. But so much of our life is spent in accumulation in one way or another. And yet the Buddha is pointing out that when we really are examining the truth of impermanence, we see that no matter what we accumulate in our lives, in any domain, is bound to dispersion. That in one way or another we're going to be parted from everything. So can we relate to the world and our experience in a way that's helpful and compassionate rather than one that's acquisitive in whatever way we happen to be acquisitive? A story I've mentioned in different retreats, but it, it, it struck me so forcibly. Uh, it was in a video I saw of a wonderful South African philosopher and naturalist and diplomat and a kind of a Renaissance man, Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, uh, who's 
quite extraordinary. And this documentary was made by a friend of ours, Mickey Lemley, on his life. Sometime after World War II, Sir Lawrence was um, working for BBC in London. And he got them to sponsor a trip to make footage of the Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert in South Africa. And he had this great love you know, of his country and of uh, these people living in the desert. So they're out in the desert and they're filming uh, you know, this meeting. And at one point, Sir Lawrence asks the, the leader of this little clan, you know, well, how long will it take you to get ready to go out into the desert? You know, and they say about 30 seconds. <laughs> and then, you know, they just gather up these few implements and walk off into the desert, and they're fine. And the very next footage is of Sir Lawrence and his whole crew loading up the Land Rover <laughs> with these boxes and trunks. And I mean, it was just like overflowing with stuff. It was such a commentary. And I'm not in any way suggesting that we either could or would be desirable for us to live like the Bushmen of the Kalahari, because I think our chance for that is long gone. (laughs) But it did point out something just in terms of, are we over-encumbered? Are there ways of living more simply? And by reflecting on the impermanence, the inevitable dispersion of whatever it is that we're burdening ourselves with, it helps us to do it. It helps us to let go of it and to actually feel the ease and the lightness. The end of birth is death, impermanence. (coughs) The end of accumulation is dispersion, impermanence. One of the hardest arenas very difficult to bring this insight into impermanence, to real power, is in the realization that all our relationships, all our meetings, end in parting. One way or another, because the nature of the relationship changes, because of death, because of Lots of reasons. One way or another, all of our relationships will end in separation. Yet how often do we become so entangled in our relationships that in the inevitable parting, one way or another, we become lost, we start drowning in overwhelming grief. I mean, this is not uncommon. The Buddha commented that people have shed more tears in grief over partings and loss than there is over the course of these endless lifetimes than there is water in all of the great oceans. And we know if either through our own personal experience or or close friends or family, we know the effect, the tremendous suffering and sorrow that can come with loss. 
to the degree that we can bring some understanding, some wisdom, some insight into the truth of change, the truth of impermanence. This is the nature of things. This is the law that we come together. It's like people, the images used of people mingling in a dream and then parting. Can we bring this awareness to the relationships in our lives, not by way of detachment or distancing, but of non-attachment, perhaps of non-clinging, so that in the inevitable loss, we don't drown in the sorrow. But this takes a lot of understanding. And again, understanding deeply in our hearts, not just intellectually. We begin to really explore the difference between love and attachment. We begin to explore deeply the difference between loss and grief. Very different things. This reflection mind-changing reflection on impermanence in all of these different ways, whether we're doing it just by noticing the ordinary, everyday changes, momentary, moment-to-moment changes of our lives, of our experience, whether in these bigger arenas of our lives. Keeping this insight present and alive and vibrant throughout practice, throughout our lives, really keeps redirecting our minds towards letting go, towards freedom. First mind-changing reflection is the preciousness of our human birth and these circumstances allowing us to practice The second mind-changing reflection is this intimacy with impermanence. The third mind-changing reflection keeps turning our mind towards the Dharma is the reflection on the law of karma. The basic understanding that everything we do, that all of our actions have consequences. The Buddha went a step further in clarifying this law of cause and effect, that actions bring results. And his further clarification really becomes the basis or the foundation for our entire spiritual journey. And really is the foundation or the possibility of every kind of happiness in our lives. The Buddha very incisively pointed out to us that it's not only that actions bring results, but that what most completely determines the result of our actions is the motivation behind them. So motivation becomes key. In one Tibetan teaching, it said, 
Everything rests on the tip of motivation. Motivation is the key to our whole journey. It's the key to the unfolding of our entire life experience. And so it's incumbent upon us to really investigate what our motivations are. It's not always so easy. Because often our motivations are confused or conflicted. It can be a series of diverse motivations. And sometimes we're just not paying attention at all. We don't even know what's going on. And this is the great power of the practice. We become so aware, we become so attuned to the workings of our own heart, we begin to get clear about the motives behind our actions. And in that clarity, we begin to be able to make wiser choices. Because if we're not clear, we're simply acting out all the old habit patterns of our conditioning. So it's essential that we develop mindfulness and attentiveness and awareness. It's the only way to create this space of freedom within us. It's very tricky. I'll share with you one story. I was on self-retreat. Generally, I'm in the habit you know, of every year sitting for a month or two in my house next door. So I was on retreat, and somewhere in the middle of it, I was reading um, this sutta, this discourse of the Buddha on faith. And I knew our colleague and friend, Sharon Salzberg, uh, is in the midst of writing a book on faith. And so I read this sutta, this discourse, and my first thought was, oh, this will be a great story for Sharon's book. And then my next thought was, no, I want to keep it for myself. I need to back up just one moment, give you some background, which you probably know. There's a fierce competition among Dharma teachers for a good story. <laughs> it's like, we're story vultures. So, you know, it's gold. Okay, so first thought was, oh, it'll be a great story for a book. Second thought, no, I want it for myself. Third thought, no, I'll give it to her, and that way more stories are going to come back to me. <laughs> and then I thought, the fourth thought, no, that's just being selfish. You know, so then fifth thought, well, I'll give her the story, but I'll tell her kind of this whole struggle that I went through. And then sixth thought or seventh thought, whatever number it was, no, that's just kind of being a little prideful. Oh, look at this struggle, and just, no. <laughs> then I gave it to you anyway. And also in there I thought, I felt, oh yeah, now she'll really also feel indebted to me. <laughs> So by this time, I was just seeing my mind as this cauldron of self-reference. <laughs> you know, it was kind of all this self, 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 self in it. And I began to wonder, you know, 
where in this mess of motivation was just a purity of action. And for a few moments it was a little discouraging. <laughs> it was hard to find. But then I, I had a moment's realization at all which was really very helpful. And I saw that there actually was a moment of pure, pure motivation. And it was that very first moment of the thought, yeah, this would be a good story you know, for her book. And even though the mind can then go on a whole trip you know, of selfishness and greed and pride and whatever our trip is, we can let that run its course, run its course and come back again to that first initial moment of purity of kindness, of generosity. It's there. It's within us. And now is a great relief. We let the other stuff run its course and then act again from a place of purity. But we need to be aware of the whole process if we don't want to get caught somewhere along the way. And that's the great gift of this retreat. We're training the attention, training the mindfulness so we really can track what's going on in our hearts and minds. We need to. It's the only way we can really be free. Well, the P.S. to this story is, after the retreat, after my retreat was over, I told her about you know, this particular sutta. She didn't even like the story. <laughs> she had no intention of using it. <laughs> We may all come to practice with many different motivations for our own practice. You know, some of us come and we're very stressed out. We're just leading very hectic, busy lives, and we just like to cool out and get some inner peace, inner spaciousness. Sometimes people come to practice because they're in the midst of you know, real psychological or emotional turmoil or suffering and really want to find a way out of that. Some people come to practice, you might say, from a more philosophical interest in the nature of mind. Some come really wanting to be free, to be liberated, to be awakened. So we may all come for very different reasons. But what I think is so important and has been so transforming in my own practice, is to see that whatever our particular individual motivations are, they can all be held in a larger context, a larger meaning. And that is the understanding that our practice is not for ourselves alone that it's possible to do our practice for the welfare and the benefit and the awakening of all other beings. So whatever brings us here is individual. And yet we can all hold the practice in this larger aspiration. In Buddhism, this is called the aspiration of bodhicitta. Bodhi is awakening, Jitta is heart. And in this context, bodhicitta means we nurture the aspiration that our practice 
be for the benefit of all. Now there's a very interesting place of transformation in our spiritual journeys. And I think it's worth highlighting because something changes in that moment. For a long time, I practiced knowing very deeply that my practice would inevitably help other beings. Know that as we become more loving and less judgmental and less fearful and more generous and kinder, it will inevitably affect the people around us. How can it not? So all along, I deeply knew that this was so. That the fruit of the practice will inevitably help others. But something changed when I went from that frame of reference to making the benefit of others the very motivation to practice. You see the difference? It will inevitably help others. We can't help but have that effect. But something changes when we begin to water that seed of bodhicitta and to bring that motivation right up front. Yes, let my practice be for the benefit of all beings. That begins to be our motivation. Very powerful. It really broadens all of our efforts, broadens our path, and is tremendously inspiring. I think you will find as you go through the many ups and downs and difficulties that come along the way, and they do, and sometimes very intensely, because we're really grappling with so many different sides of ourselves. In the midst of the greatest difficulties, if we reconnect with this aspiration of bodhicitta, yes, I'm practicing for the benefit of all beings, it is a source of tremendous strength and courage and beauty. So how can we do this? And we do it in a very modest way. It's not to get caught up in some idealized notion of, oh yes, now I'm this great being practicing for the benefit of all. And It's not about that kind of inflation. It's a very small seed that we can plant within ourselves and slowly and gradually let it grow, let it ripen and mature. So just as some very simple suggestions of ways to do this. At the beginning of a sitting or a walking or the beginning of each day, however you like to do it, if it inspires you, if you connect with this aspect of the teachings, you might make the aspiration. May my practice, may this sitting, be for the benefit, the awakening of all beings. So, just a very simple planting of the seed. It sets the tone, it sets the context, sets the motivation. And at the end of the sitting, 
we might dedicate the merit of our sitting in that way. A couple of years ago, I came across one particular dedication of merit, which inspired me a lot, and so I'll share it with you. The way it was expressed, it was said, may the merit of my practice or may the merit of this sitting be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, the present, and future. May the merit of my sitting be joined together with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, and together may it all be dedicated to the awakening, the happiness, the welfare of all. And it just felt so inspiring to me because instead of adding my own paltry little merit from that sitting with which my mind was probably wandering a lot, you know, okay, well, I took whatever little bit was there, but I added it to the merit of all the virtuous actions of past, present, and future. Well, that's a substantial offering. <laughs> You know, so it felt, yeah, this is really a nice thing to do. <laughs> and so it was very uplifting. You know, and it's, it feels like we're just joining this great stream, you know, of purity, of wholesomeness that has come before us and will come after us. So it's tremendously inspiring and beautiful. So this was about the third reflection that turns the mind towards the Dharma, which is the reflection on karma, law of cause and effect, particularly focusing on the importance of motivation and learning about our own motivations, making wise choices, and cultivating the motivation of bodhicitta. And in the last minute of the talk, I'll (laughs) mention the fourth mind-changing reflection, which we will be exploring in depth during this retreat. The fourth reflection, which turns our mind towards the Dharma, is the reflection on the defects of samsara. The defects of just this endless wandering through countless rebirths. And whether you think of rebirths in the classical Buddhist sense, from life to life, through all the realms, or you think of rebirths day to day, hour to hour, moment to moment, it is the same process. Just today, how many mind worlds have you lived in? Now, countless, how many places have you been? You've probably were back home, you know, with your family, your friends, or thinking about the upcoming days of the retreat or what you're going to do when it's over, our mind just proliferates in creating these worlds and getting lost in these mind worlds. It's endless. It's like being lost in a dream. And it is incapable of providing us with true happiness. This is the defects of samsara. We simply keep circling around and around and around.
the Buddha is really offering us, you know, with such tremendous precision and clarity and possibility, a way to awaken from this dream. To come out of this endless proliferation of thought. Simply notice, as a way of exploring this fourth mind-changing reflection, simply notice those moments when you awaken from being lost in a long train of thought. And notice what your mind does at that time. So first, see the difference between being lost in the movie of your mind and then waking from that, being aware. Really pay attention to the difference. And then notice what your mind does in the awareness of that difference. Do you start judging yourself? Oh, there I was lost again for the 10,000th time. Or do you take delight in the fact of awakening? Take your choice. If you'd like, judge yourself. <laughs> On the other hand, you can really be delighted. Oh, yeah, this is the wakeful mind. And you're, you're back in it again. And so really have that moment of joy in the wakefulness. It's really a much better approach. <laughs> so these are the four reflections. I hope that you really take them to heart and not just, well, this was Saturday night's Dharma talk. It's really something to bring to life in our practice because they do turn our mind towards the Dharma. Remembering the preciousness of these circumstances. Seeing clearly the momentariness, the changing nature of things. Understanding the law of cause and effect and the importance of recognizing motivation. And nurturing the possibility of bodhicitta. And seeing the defects of samsara, the endlessness of the wandering and the possibility of freedom. This is our practice here together. And... Fantastic. So I hope you value this time and use it well. Thank you. Let's sit for a few minutes. <laughs>